Thank you for downloading the Big Thinkers podcast. This is episode number 11. Welcome to the SR Big Thinkers Show, where we share insights, wisdom and tools you can use to enhance the quality of your digital business and strategic communications. After a short hiatus, I'm thrilled to say that we're back and ready with more amazing people and insights to share with you. I'm Lawrence Ampofo, and my guest today is Tim Huang. Tim is a fellow at Data and Society a research institute that focuses on the social and cultural issues that come from data-centric technological development. But to say just this about Tim would do him a spectacular disservice. He's the founder of RuffleCon, and he's also the founder of the Awesome Foundation. In this interview, Tim and I talk about the potential impact of social bots, how social media influences people, and what we can do about it. If you enjoy this episode, you'll also love our new course called Social Media Intelligence, where experts from around the world will teach you how to use international social media for intelligence. But now, on with the interview. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Tim Huang. Tim, welcome to the show. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you here. Um, I know we've been um, kind of been backwards and forwards a lot, a little bit to get our calendars to match, but... Thank you so much for coming to share your wisdom and insight with us. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. So, Tim, you've got an incredibly interesting history, um, and I'd just like it if you could share that with the audience a little bit. How did you come to be focusing on things like digital data, law, and society? Sure. Uh, my interest uh, has actually been for a little while now. Um, you know, I got I got interested in in while I was at college, um, thinking a little bit about the ways in which uh, technology intersects with with copyright. Um, so at the time, you know, uh, sort of file sharing uh, had gotten a lot of traction, um, and there's this interesting question about what the internet was doing to intellectual property. Uh, and I think from there, I just got interested in a whole range of other things about you know the ways in which sort of our technical infrastructure um, shapes uh, how society uh, lives. And um, and and so so you know one thing led to another, and and I ended up both sort of working uh, at sort of research centers. So I used to be part of the Berkman Center. Uh, for Internet and Society, and I'm, I'm part of another research center now called Data and Society, based in New York, um, a, a, as well as kind of going to law school. And so I've kind of always joined these two interests, and it's it's uh, it's been fun. It's led me in a lot of interesting directions. So you've written about the ways that social media programs um, are being conducted by governments and international organizations to influence and perhaps manipulate behavior. I was wondering if you can just tell the audience a little bit more about that, because I don't think many people are very aware of this. Sure. So, you know, it's kind of funny. It actually started um, mostly because me and a couple of friends were sort of interested in, in seeing whether or not we could do it ourselves, sort of shape conversation uh, and kind of social connection online. Um, and so, you know, a little, uh, a number of few years ago, we, we sort of were working on these competitions, basically, where people would create accounts on Facebook or Twitter or other social networks. And the whole idea was, it was just sort of a competition, right? Could you get lots of people to follow your account? Could you get them to um, say certain things or repeat certain things? 
Um, and one of the really intriguing things is that we found is that um, not only could people do that, but they could also kind of automate um, the, the task of doing that. So they could write software that would control an account, basically a bot on these social networks, um, and it would automate the way these accounts would behave. Um, and it turns out that these were effective and, and actually quite effective. Um, and so we got really interested in, in sort of the applications of this technology. And, and what I would say is, you know, in the last few years, sort of what we've seen uh, is increasingly, you know, not just kind of a couple kids playing around, but, but actually governments investing quite aggressively in developing the capacity to sort of shape conversation online. Um, and, you know, I think it's a big departure for, for, you know, how people used to think about the internet. You know, I think they used to think about the internet as a place that sort of governments couldn't control, or it would be very difficult for them to control. Um, but I think a lot of what we're seeing now is them, you know, taking on that challenge and, and seeing whether or not they can actually do it um, for, for good or for ill. You know, I, I think what's really interesting is just that the government at all is sort of getting into this space. Mm. But what's really interesting in, ter in terms of the research that I've been conducting as well is that other civil society organizations are using this same kind of automated way mm. in terms of engaging with people. So like terrorist organizations or activist organizations are kind of doing the same thing with their bots. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So, I mean, I think we see governments doing this. We see sort of what they call non-state actors, right? So terrorist groups and, and you know, nonprofits. And what, what's sort of really interesting is that social media is kind of moving, you know, almost I think about it as, as a new phase. And, and, and that new phase is one in which kind of social interaction is uh, sort of automated and and also scaled up. Um, you know, th there's sort of this this arms race in the ability to influence through social media, and it turns out you just can't do it anymore with you know a couple cool twenty somethings who are your social media experts. You know, I think there's there's researchers and you know software developers and a whole kind of infrastructure being built around how do we use this channel uh, in a way that's that's you know not just for kind of people talking about what they had for lunch. So. Um I mean, this this is absolutely mind-boggling because this whole idea of social bots and using social media to influence attitudes and behaviours, um, is it obvious, do you think, to people that perhaps they are being, um, that they are speaking to a bot or that their influence is being uh, manipulated? And I'm talking, I guess, from just a general user perspective. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think, you know, I, I would say, you know, I don't think about social bots in some ways as a new thing, right? I, I think it's it's important to think of them as part of the history of persuasion and sort of the history of media, right? And, and you know, I think in the past, right, um, you know, what was interesting was basically that, you know, you had the radio uh, station, you had the TV channel, these are all places where you knew where the messaging was coming from, right, uh, for in, in large part, right? And, and you could choose to believe it or not believe it. Uh, on the Internet, what's interesting is, you know, there's a lot of bots that are very crude, and, and therefore I think most people can figure out that they're bots pretty quickly. Um, but the problem is as it gets more and more sophisticated, it becomes more and more difficult to say, you know, is this account a bot or not? Or, or more interestingly is you know, um, a whole group of people online, real or not. Um, and, and I think that becomes a little bit more complicated and, and really difficult, I think, for, for just any user to be able to say, oh, well, that message is coming from somewhere and, and you know, I'm just not going to pay attention to it. Gosh, that's unbelievable. Could, could you give an example of, I mean, you mentioned that there are some bots that are quite crude and it's pretty obvious to know when you're dealing with one and, you know, obviously there are some where it's not so obvious, but could you give an example of a crude bot like, how would someone know? 
Absolutely, yeah. So this is this is actually, um, you know, we've seen a really interesting case happen in Syria. Um, they've also happened in, in Turkey as well. Um, you know, basically what happens is often it appears basically that kind of authoritarian regimes or um, kind of countries that have an interest in shaping the discussion online, they don't have access to very sophisticated bot technology. So what they do is they just want to kind of create enough noise online that it doesn't become a very useful channel for activists to use, right? So, you know, you've seen a lot of protests, you know, whether it be in, you know, the, the Arab Spring or elsewhere, where social media and, you know, for example, hashtags on Twitter are used to coordinate people. And so one strategy is, well, if we don't have very sophisticated technology, what if we have a couple bots come in who just kind of spread sort of trash into the channel? It doesn't make it makes it less useful as a way for people to communicate and organize. And um, you've seen bots in both of those cases show up. And, and basically what they do is they just sort of tweet the same thing over and over and over and over again, right? So, you know, it'll be either something pro-regime or, or we'll try to spread, you know, a particular message but it won't, the, the bot sort of won't really pretend to be human, right? It won't say, oh, I live here or, oh, you know, I, 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 you know, went out to the supermarket to buy some groceries. There's not a whole lot of kind of, you know, personality to these bots. They're really just channels to kind of push the same message. They're, they're sort of doing the same thing that, you know, an email spammer might do. Mm. So you mentioned there that, for example, like Syria and Turkey, those would be examples where, I guess, um, they're not terribly good examples of how this is being used. But what are some organizations or governments that are using this technology quite well? So there's two really, really interesting stories uh, evolving on that front, right? I mean, I think both uh, Russia and China are, are very interesting in this respect. There's a great article that was done for the New York Times um, where a journalist was able to kind of get a better sense of this large operation that that Russia is operating, right? And, you know, basically there's an agency within the Russian government whose purpose is to kind of shape social media discussion. And, and that, that involves bots on one hand, um, but it also involves just large groups of humans controlling accounts online. And, and I think that's really complicated because it makes it more difficult than just bots, right? What's interesting about bots is, well, bots behave in predictable ways. If we can come up with their sort of signature behavior, we can try to figure out which one is and which isn't a bot. But if you're mixing both bot behavior and human behavior in controlling an account, it becomes much more difficult to sort of recognize. Uh, and so I think these influence operations are scaling up and they're, they're finding ways of turning sort of human content into, um, you know, basically scaling the operation in a way that like one person can handle a large number of bots. With, with the research then that you've been conducting um, at Data and Society, are you finding then that influence, if you're able to influence someone online, does that translate to in-person or I don't want to say offline, but offline behavior? Yeah, so this is, I think, the really big question. Um, and, and I think there's two answers to it. So one of them is, in many cases, it, it very well might, right? Um, you can imagine saying, okay, well, uh, I'm an authoritarian government, and I feel that there's a bunch of protesters who want to do a protest that I don't really want to see. Well, one approach could say, could we create um, a couple of different competing protests and try to get people to sign up for them, right, as a way of kind of breaking up the crowd? So when people turn up, it turns up that they turn up at the wrong place or they, um, you know, are, are not really in one big group that's difficult to all arrest at a single time, right? I think that's a very palpable way in which kind of social media information can influence real world behavior. There's also this really interesting study that came out recently where um, they were testing out the ability for sort of search results to influence election behavior. So the idea is, oh, if I, you know, 
um, I'm searching for a candidate and a lot of bad information comes up about him. Am I likely to vote for the other person? And it turns out they can actually quantify this. And they found that, yes, actually, it turns out if you're, you're sort of undecided, there's the ability for this information to sway your behavior. So I think that's one line of things is, is to say, yeah, I mean, I think there's an emerging body of research that suggests that, look, not surprisingly, what, we've, what we see in terms of information online can influence our behavior. I think the other one, though, is even if it doesn't really cause people to come out onto the street or, you know, vote against someone or, or what have you, what's really interesting is that the mass media now, right, your TVs and your radios and, and all those other things that people pay attention to now actually use the Internet as a, a core source of information. And so I think what one of the things I think I think a lot about is, you know, what happens when people realize that they can manipulate those signals to try to give sort of mass media and governments wrong impressions of what's actually happening on the ground. So you might not be able to influence mass behavior, but you wonder about your ability to influence kind of these like core pieces of infrastructure and and sort of important decision makers that really can make a difference. And I, I think that's that's also quite interesting. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I guess my next, this is going to be my last question, but I'm just going to get, ask you now and that, sure, sure. Is, it, is, it, is it worth it? Do you think, I mean, if, if we're able to manipulate the signals in such a way as to affect attitudes and behaviours and people become aware that when they step into this online environment, that they are being, um, um, that their attitudes and behaviours are kind of under attack, if you like, won't people just leave the network? That's right. And so I think there's two kind of models there, right? So one of them is the one that you're pointing out, which I, I think is, is pretty interesting as well, right? Which is basically to say, you know, when you still see a billboard on the street now and there's someone on it who's dressed up like a doctor saying that you should take a certain medicine, I think a lot of people now say, well, you know, that person is probably paid and he might not even be an actor. He might just be an actor. Uh, he, he might not even be like a real doctor. He might just be an actor. Um, and, and I think that the same might happen with social media, right? Which is that as all of these kind of interests to kind of shape and persuade and control, um, enter these systems, everybody might lose trust in these systems over time. And so there's a really interesting question about what happens after that. And, and, you know, I think you could argue that like the rise of things like, you know, WhatsApp and WeChat and these kind of very sort of private social networks, um, are a good response to that, right? Like that, that basically these kind of like open air systems like Facebook and Twitter um, have just not been as able to kind of keep the trust of their users. And, and actually over time, people will kind of flee to sort of smaller trusted networks, right? Like if I get information through my email, I trust it a lot more than if I see a random story on, on social media, right? And, and I think that's, that's one possibility. I think the other possibility though is, is that, you know, the bot makers just get smarter, right? And, and so you know, that might be a, a real interesting suggestion that in the future we might see kind of an arms race where, you know, the bots become more sophisticated, humans figure out their tricks, and then the people creating bots figure out ways to, to get them to be even more sophisticated, right? And so there's always kind of this back and forth whereby, you know, bots are always being uncovered, but there's always more deception happening as well. And, um, and I think that's a, another possible scenario. That's um... <laughs> I love this. And so this then lends the whole credence to the idea that we as a populace need to become much more digitally literate in terms of, you know, these signals and, you know, understanding that, for example, the the representation of what happens online might not be an, an accurate representation of what is happening in the real world, that these are just digital signals. But I guess this digital literacy is not something that a lot of people undertake yeah i think that's that's right i mean i think so i think the literacy part of it is 
yeah, very important and really critical. Um, uh, but I think the one problem with a lot of literacy approaches is, you know, it turns out that it's really difficult to, to and in a very long-term investment to build that up, right? Like it's very difficult to get people educated on issues that are of concern to them. And so kind of where I'm at now is I, I think, yeah, I agree with you. I think digital literacy is a really big part of it. But I also am starting to think more about what are the what are the tools that we can provide to people, right? So you know, I think a little bit about, you know, when you when you get into a car, it, the early days of cars maybe didn't have a speedometer, for instance. And then we built that into the indicator for, for, for your vehicle. So you, now you know how fast your car is driving. And so I think about what are those same kind of indicators we might want to build for the social space online, right? Like, is it useful, for example, to know that, um, oh, it turns out that your friend's friend just joined this, this social network and they always talk about this one thing that's very political, Right. Like, would that give you better notice about where the kind of influence um, is emanating from in your social network? And, and so I think providing those kinds of radars um, may actually go a really long way to building that literacy, but also keeping people safe against these attacks. But again, every time you build a detector, you can find ways around it. And so I think that is also a kind of arms race that we'll see. I mean, again, I was going to ask you this, but this sounds like a kind of um, almost like an, an AI Right, it kind of gets the level of AI and being inserted into um, into the social media environment, and this is this level of AI is going to be available to everyone, isn't it? And being able to, um, I guess, have the technology to be able to spot content that is inauthentic or or that isn't real or that might potentially be a bot, is this the kind of tech that, that you were talking about? Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, you know, as they get more sophisticated, right? Like, I think the, the, the crudest version is we create a detector that has just a couple of simple heuristics, right? Um, but, but the problem with those is that they don't, they can't evolve with the tactics happening out there. Uh, and so I think the next approach is like, yeah, basically, can, can you have a, your own bot, I guess, that sort of monitors the environment and based on what people are doing, make some inferences about what might be more trustworthy or not trustworthy, I think the the real risk of that, though, is what you're seeing happening in, you know, advertising blockers, right? It's just once you have a business that's based on protecting people, there's a lot of money in letting the bad actors through or being compromised by those bad actors. And so you can imagine a weird future world where you have these bots protecting users, but hey, you know, maybe you become a preferred partner that happens to pay that company a lot of money and so your messages will get through and i think that's interesting is is that our protection our systems of protection may be creating new points of uh control and new points of weakness uh and so i think you know that that's the problem perhaps with my tool approach and, and probably the benefit with the sort of literacy approach is that you hope by building kind of personal capacity we won't become too reliable on other people's tools so so yep yeah, so basically um everything that we're talking that we've been speaking about just now it would seem to me then that these that these tools and that this approach to social media influence, it would seem to me that this is an essential part of modern day statecraft, that governments kind of have to, as you were saying, invest heavily and aggressively um, in this, that this is just a part of what people do now, in addition to things like diplomacy and um, um, and other forms of traditional statecraft. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, you know, I, I think with any with any arms race, part of the problem is even if you don't want to engage it in it, you may need to basically because you know other people might be investing in that technology. Um, and 
And, you know, I, I think that may be the case, particularly after you saw what happened in, in the Ukraine, right? I, I, there's a couple of really interesting pieces that were done, kind of covering of this really interesting fact that, you know, I think the Russians were really effective at not only having a military operation, but also influencing sort of how it was perceived online. It was, it was as much a media battle as it was a, a, a battle in real space. And, um, you know, I think the development of those capacities and the advantages that it gives to nations that do invest in it um, might, might make it a really kind of critical part of sort of the toolkit of, of statecraft. Um, and and I, I think that that's, that's particularly interesting because, you know, I, I think for so long social media has been very much a space about it's been a personal space, right? And, and, you know, I think what we see now is really these kinds of social platforms kind of rising to the level of, of infrastructure, right? Like the, a, a state might want to have control over the telephone networks and the posted service uh, and in the same way that they might want control over these systems as well. And, and I think that battle is, is, is I think, what we're going to see play out. Um, as I think countries realize that, that you know, it, it turns out that particularly for democracies, right? Like what's, what's perceived to be true can be really, really important. Gosh. So um, I guess my last question then for you, Tim, is if you're, if you're a small organization or if you are a kind of just a, a general person using this, what advice would you give to people kind of stepping now, having listened to this into the social, um, into the digital arena? How would you recommend people go about I guess not so much protecting themselves but I guess just being more aware of these um, um, that these different signals are being um, manipulated sure yeah I mean I think part of it is you know that there are a lot of marketers uh, and a lot of other people that you might work with who are selling sort of digital listening tools now right they say social media is very complicated um, and you need these tools to help process and provide like clean analytics to let you know what's going on um, and I think that's a really attractive sales pitch. And I think a lot of companies who are getting into digital, um, are, are attracted by that. Um, but I, I think there's no substitute for getting in and, and really figuring it out all by yourself, right? Like it may take some time. It may be difficult. It may be sort of culturally something your organization needs to get to do. Um, but I think the worry about relying on these sorts of analytics, um, is that they always they, they tend to have a very naive vision of the data that's entering the system. And so um, whether or not that gives you the wrong impression or lets other people manipulate what you see, um, I, I think there, there's really good cause to, to be a little bit skeptical about, you know, the value that those tools provide. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I think, that, again, maybe digital literacy is the right approach that very much what needs to be done is actually to go in and really understand how these, these platforms work. Fantastic. Tim, where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, sure. Uh, two places are great. Um, so I, I work with the Intelligence and Autonomy Project at Data and Society, which is a research center in, uh, based in New York. And so that's at dataandsociety.net. And, um, and I guess I'm, I'm on Twitter, not a bot on Twitter, <laughs> uh, <laughs> at, at Tim Huang. So that's T-I-M-H-W-A-N-G. Fantastic. Tim, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Um, I really appreciate it. And yeah, thank you for your time and wisdom. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on the, the show. So, Tim, thank you very much. That was fascinating as I thought it would be. Understanding the impacts of online communities and how social bots can influence how groups of people think means that we all have to be ahead of the curve just in understanding how this works for us. 
Thank you so much again for downloading this podcast. We're really looking forward to being with you again next week.